I would like to speak this morning the sermon topic, the true identity of God. The true identity of God. The text is taken from Exodus chapter 34. We were looking at the first nine or ten verses. Identity theft has been, become text was read earlier this morning. So for the sake of time, I will not read it again. But as I said before, identity theft has become one of the most rapid crimes sweeping our nation. It's occurring at unprecedented levels. Criminals are finding creative ways to rip the social security numbers and the basic biographical information of a person and then use that information to assume the unwitting person's identity. It was reported that a 30-year-old woman's purse was stolen earlier this year and with it, two vehicles have been purchased by thieves assuming her identity. And when she received a card thanking her for buying a car that she never purchased, she knew that the thieves had struck again. Something similar to that happened to us a few years ago when someone used my identity to purchase electronics. They purchased food service and other items before we discovered what had happened. However, it's worse when someone has the nerve to steal the identity of God. I mean, who would be willing to assume matters about his identity? Yet, across this country, there are those who are misrepresenting God's identity. Don't look around now, friend, but someone has stolen God's identity. In many pulpits across the country, some are guilty of stealing God's identity by misrepresenting him. There are those who have stolen his identity and replaced it with a prosperity God. They are saying that his chief concern is our health and wealth. Someone has stolen God's identity. There are those who have stolen his identity and replaced it with a universalism God. They are saying that everybody is saved and all roads lead to heaven. Someone has stolen God's identity. There are those who have stolen his identity and replaced it with a fast food God. Have it your way relationship attempting to redefine sin as a lifestyle, elevating love at the expense of holiness, somebody has stolen God's identity. There are those who have stolen his identity and replaced it with a limited God. They insist that evil in the world is a result 
of a limited God who can't do anything about it. Somebody has stolen God's identity. There are those who have stolen his identity and replaced it with a political God. They're trying to make God a politician as if he is running for office, elevating social issues above everything else. Somebody has stolen God's identity. They have stolen God's identity, and today we come to recover who God really is. The struggle and still in God's identity is that if the truth were to be told, most of us would want a God who serves us rather than a God that we serve. We want to create a designer God who has all parts that we like. And then we want to delete those that we dislike. Today, just for a little while. By the power of the Holy Spirit and by based on the truth of God's word, I want to talk about the true identity of God. To find out the true identity of something that you have to, you have to start with the original. Look again at Exodus. It's printed in your bulletin if you don't have a Bible with you. Look again at verses 6 through 7 we see that God fills out his own birth certificate. And he describes it to us who he really is. It's this self-description that is referenced time and time again for the rest of the scripture. This is the identity to shape our preaching. Our preaching ought to be shaped by the true identity of God. Our preaching is not to be shaped by what's in style or what draws a crowd, but rather by the true identity of God. Hear these words again about God's true identity. Look again at Exodus 34. I'm going to concentrate primarily on verses 5 through 9. And they read, The Lord came down in a cloud, and stood with him there and proclaimed his name, Yahweh. Then the Lord passed in front of him and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh is compassionate and a gracious God, slow to anger and rich in faithful love and truth, maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations Forgiven wrongdoing, rebellion, and sin. But he will not leave the guilty unpunished. Bringing the consequences of the father's wrongdoing on the, grand, on the children and the grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. Moses immediately bowed down to the ground and worshiped. And then he said, my Lord, if I have indeed found favor in your sight, my Lord, please go with me, with us. 
even though this is a stiff-necked people, forgive our own doing and sin and accept us as your possession. God fills out his own birth certificate and he has described to us who he really is. This is the identity that we ought to be searching for. This is the identity. He starts in verse 6. The Lord, the Lord. Then the Lord passed in front of him and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh, is a compassionate and a gracious God. God reveals himself and proclaims his name. Remember in ancient history, the name of the person stood for all that the person is and all that that person does. All that God is and all that God does, his character and nature, his person, are wrapped up in God's name, the Lord. If you look at those verses, we notice how God describes his name, how he defines his name and what he says his, his name stands for. This is what God proclaimed to Moses This is the deep spiritual experience that God gave to his servant Moses. God is the Lord, the Lord. The Lord, the Lord, a Jehovah Yahweh. The word has three significant meanings. Lord means that I am that I am. The very essence of being the energy, the force, and the source of his being. Lord means the God of salvation. It means deliverance and redemption. Lord means the God of revelation, the God who reveals himself and the truth to man. God was proclaiming to Moses, and he declares the same message to us. God proclaims his name to us, for his name has never changed. God is the Lord, Jehovah, Yahweh. The great God of revelation who reveals himself and the truth is, uh, his truth to us. The great God of salvation, deliverance, and redemption. The great I am, that I am. He restates the name he had given to Moses already. He said, I am what was. I am is. I am will be. He doesn't stop there. He begins to unpack what that I am, I am means. He goes on to tell him that I am a compassionate 
and gracious God. God tells us that he is a compassionate and gracious God. He is compassionate in that he loves and cares for us as a mother with her child. This word compassion means womb, referring to the maternal nature of mothers. It can be broadened to include the care of fathers and mothers, but foundationally it's the image of a mother caring for her children. You see, God grabs hold of an image of a mother as she cradles her children, as she nurses her children, teaches her children, and hauls her children, puts her children to bed, and tends to them when they're sick. He says that who I am, I am. I am compassionate. I care. I am concerned about you. This describes a God who lovingly cares for us, although we are weak. His grace means that he comes to the aid of the weak. God inherently cares and is concerned for the weak. Though this care is undeserved, there is no reason for him to care for us. He is the stronger coming to the aid of the weaker, but it is only at his own invitation. He cares, he is compassionate, and he is involved in our lives. He is involved in our world, though we don't deserve his care. We don't deserve his concern. He gives it by his own gracious action. We need to understand compassion and grace are not what God does, but it's who God is. God cares for us with no ulterior motive, and we never, never can repay him. This is just who he is. What a picture of God that he's painting here. As God describes himself, we can imagine that Moses is probably listening intently. And he hears these two things. He hears these two words, compassionate and gracious. And he begins to think about his situation. He begins to think about all the occasions that God has concerned, was concerned about his people. And he graciously intervened in their situation. There was Israel's story. And most recently, picking up the difficult suppression, oppression by the Egyptians, we have to go back to Exodus 1. But in Exodus 2, the people groaned their prayers to God because of their great pain. And God looked on them and was concerned about them. God cared enough to hear their prayers and then graciously got involved and rescued them. And if that weren't enough, Moses had his own story. Again, if we go back to Exodus 1, Moses was scheduled to die. 
Remember when all the Hebrew boys were to be killed. But in Exodus 2, God cared enough to get involved and kept him alive. So the basket that Moses was placed in could float to the right house at the right time, in the right stream, to the right woman. God cares and he cares graciously. God cares and he cares graciously and goes beyond all our expectations. When God puts compassion and graciousness together, he reminds us that he cares for us extravagantly. And he does so knowing there is no way, no way that we can repay him. The enemy would cause you to question God's care. When you leave the hospital after visiting someone on life support, when you watch believers suffering miscarriages, or when cancer strikes someone that you love, when drug abuse hits close to home, when divorce visits those in whom you've invested, when those who have helped build the church in hospice care, when you don't want to share because of a broken heart, just remember, God cares. God cares. In 1904 in Leicestershire, New York, the Reverend W. Stillman Martin, a well-known Baptist evangelist, was invited to preach at a church some distance from the Bible school where he was working. And that Sunday morning, Mrs. Martin suddenly fell ill and she was confined to her bed, making it impossible for her to accompany her husband to his preaching engagement. Reverend Martin seriously considered canceling his speaking assignment because he would have to be away from home for a considerable length of time. However, the young son spoke up and he said, Father, don't you think if God wants you to preach today, he will take care of mother while you're away. Agreeing, Reverend Martin kept his preaching appointment, and the service provide, uh, proved to be unusually blessed by God, with several people professing Christ as Savior. Later, when he returned home that evening, Mrs. Martin found his wife greatly improved in health. In fact, while he was gone, she had been engaged in preparing a new hymn. The text inspired by the remarks of their young son earlier that day. And that same evening, Reverend Stillman Martin composed the music for his wife's words, just as they're still sung today. Be not dismayed, whatever betide. God will take care of you. Beneath his wings of love abide. God will take care of you. God will take care of you. Through every day, over all the way, he'll take care of you. God will take care of you. A year later, with the help of friends, 
Mrs. Martin also wrote another song. His eyes is on the sparrow. You see, the God of Scripture is caring. He's a caring God. And he's a gracious God. And he goes on to say that I am a loving and a faithful God. He's now drawing on the covenant language used in the Hebrew word hesed, which means unfailing love or loyal love. And this refers to the commitment that God has made to his people in, in the covenant as well as commitment he's made to us. Here God's covenant love is connected with the Hebrew word for faithfulness, which means truth or truthfulness. God's covenant love means God is consistent with his character. He had a covenant with Israel, and God is bound with his word. He is a God who loves us. He loves us with a love that never fails. He's a God who loves us and is committed to his word. He's a God who loves us and is faithful beyond our comprehension. He is a loyal love, and that is forever committed, forever unfailing. Isn't it interesting? God describes his love on the hills of another episode of Israel's betrayal and disobedience. He gives this definition of his loyal love only after Israel has seen evidence of who God is. If we go back to chapter 32 of Exodus, we find that they have really betrayed God by creating an idol, a golden calf, simply because Moses was taking too long talking to God on Mount Sinai. Because of their impatience and inability to be faithful to God in their leader's absence, God gives Moses a fresh understanding that he, God, remains faithful to his word. Moses himself had dealt with unfaithfulness. After all, in his hands at this very moment, The scripture tells us that Moses stood there with two stone tablets. He had chiseled. But the reason that he was carrying them because he had broken the first two due to the unfaithfulness of the Israelites. Moses needed to know about the love and faithfulness of God. Moses needed to know that this was the God that he was serving. And Moses heard the two words, loving and faithful. It was music to his ears. It wasn't as though Moses thought everything, everything that he imagined that he found in God. Here, God so described himself that Moses' own response 
when he finished. When God finished with a definition, Moses' only response was to bow down and worship. All he could do was worship and ask for his presence. Friends, the same thing will happen to you. When you proclaim the true identity of God, the only thing that you will be able to do is worship. Moses, scripture tells us, immediately fell to the ground, prostrating himself before the Lord in worship and prayer. Then he asked God for three specific things. The very same request that he had already made and already been making to God. In some ways, Moses was doing just what the Lord Jesus Christ was to reveal when he came to earth. That we should ask, that we should seek, and we should knock when we face desperate need. And when that happens, God will hear. Moses prayed for God's guidance, that the Lord himself will lead him and God's people to the promised land. Moses prayed for God's forgiveness. He could not get away from the fact that he and the people were short, ever so short of God's glory. And in fact, he described them as being stiff-necked sinful and depraved. Moses prayed for forgiveness, always standing in need of God's forgiveness. Moses prayed for God to accept his people as God's very own possession and inheritance. You see, Moses wanted God to attach himself so closely to his people that he would never cast them off holding them ever so near and dear to his heart. He wanted God to make them eternally secured in himself, to claim them as his very own people, his very own possession, his very own inheritance. You need to know God's love is with you. God's loyal love will sustain you. We live in days of cohabitation. We live in days of prenuptial agreements. We live in the days of the fine print. We live in the days of church free agency. People change churches almost as often as they change clothes. Everyone is looking for a better team. We live in the days of lack of commitment and loyalty to anyone or anything. We are so accustomed to unfaithfulness. 
But God defines himself by saying, I'm faithful. He he, he says, I'm faithful. I will never leave you nor forsake you. His compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is his faithfulness. God who has called you into fellowship with the Son, Jesus Christ, is faithful. The one who calls you is faithful. And he will do it as he said. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive our sins and will purify us from all unrighteousness. People need something that they can depend on. Given all the fluctuations in life, we need that something that we can depend on. Politicians come and go. City officials come and go. Jobs come and go. Even our health comes and goes. Relationship comes and go. Friends come and go. Ministers come and go. However, God comes along and tells us he's here to stay. Dependability, reliability, consistency, integrity, and faithfulness is found in God. He is consistent. We need, he's the consistency we need in our lives. In other words, he will last. He will last through our health problems. He will last through our family problems. He will last through our legal problems. He will last through our job problems. He will last through our money problems. He will last through recession. He will last no matter who's in office. He will last through it all. He will last. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and through Him and all things were made. And without Him, Nothing was made that has been made. He will last. The grass withers and flowers fall, but the word of our God stands forever. He will last. Lord, thou hast been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were born, thou hast didst give the birth to the earth and the world. Even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. He will last. From the rising of the sun to the place where it sets, the name of the Lord is to be praised. He will last. Jesus Christ, the same. Yesterday, today, and forever. He will last. Through He lasted through 430 years of Egyptian bondage. He lasted through the parting of the Red Sea. He He lasted through the 40 years they they wandered in the desert. 
He lasted through the stormy seas. He lasted through imprisonment. He lasted through floods. He will last. Then he goes on to say, I am a forgiven and just God. Forgiven wickedness. Forgiven rebellion and sin. Yet, he does not leave the guilt unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sins of parents to the third and the fourth generations. He's a forgiven God. Some years ago in Minneapolis, Minnesota, a lady by the name of Mary had a son named Larry who was shot to death during an argument at a party. Larry was 20 years old, and he was Mary's only child. The killer was a 16-year-old kid named O'Shea. Mary wanted justice. O'Shea was tried as an adult sentenced to 25 and one half years. O'Shea served 17 of those years before being released. He again lives in the same neighborhood next door to Mary, in the same complex. Mary lives at 904, O'Shea lives at 902. You might be wondering, what's wrong with this picture? A few years before O'Shea was released from Pierre's prison, Mary asked if he should, if if she could meet him at the Minnesota State Prison. Mary was a devout Christian, and she felt compelled to see if there's some way, somehow, she could forgive her son's killer. As O'Shea tells it, he, he said, I can't, I, I, the first thing that she said to me was, look, you don't know me. I don't know you. Let's just start over right now. O'Shea said he was totally befuddled and they continued to meet regularly. Doesn't say how often that Murray went to visit with O'Shea, but she did visit him. And when he was released, Mary introduced him to her landlord, who with Mary's blessings invited O'Shea to move into that same building Today, they don't just live close, they are close. You see, Mary was able to forgive. For O'Shea, it wasn't easy, and still hasn't been easy. He said, I haven't totally forgiven myself yet. I'm learning to forgive myself, and I'm still growing towards trying to grow 
into that maturity. Mary not only lifted a burden off of O'Shea by forgiving him, but she then invited him into her world. That's what God did for us. He forgave us and then he invited us to live with him. The word forgive has a meaning to lift up, carry, to take away. Israel needed a forgiving God because the people had a tendency to complain. They had a tendency to grumble. They had a tendency to doubt God. And most recently, they had created a golden calf to worship. Although God had proven himself on timeless occasions, they still had a tendency to sin. And they were guilty in every way. Thanks be to God that he is a forgiving God. You know, when we go back and we examine the track record of the Israelites, they needed a forgiving God. But you know, we we don't have to look at them. I can look at myself my thoughts and actions, my ways and habits, my struggles and weaknesses, pride, lies, lust, and attitude. I don't have to look far back. I can look at this this morning and say, I need help. I can look at myself and on my best day, And I'm still so far from God's standard. Thank God he's forgiven. He's a forgiven God. He has lifted. He is lifting. He He will lift those sins away. His forgiveness is seen in us. The reason I can stand and preach the true identity of God is because he has forgiven me. Moses knew God's forgiveness because of his own struggles. Moses needed a forgiving God because of his own past. Moses was a murderer, you might remember. God was forgiven because the law was given. God was forgiven in the Garden of Eden. God was forgiven. God is forgiven. And God will be forgiven. Thank God that he is forgiven right now. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The text reveals that his nature is to forgive. But it reveals something else. It reveals he also punishes. Along with forgiveness is his justice. His forgiveness does not excuse his judgment. Yes, the text says he is slow to anger. The text says that he's patient with us. 
He gives us time to turn around. He gives us time to get it right. The text also reveals that if we do not repent, God will not leave the guilty unpunished. It it, it almost sounds as if there is a contradiction in the verse between God forgiving and God punishing. But the link is that forgiveness occurs for those who repent, while punishment remains for those who refuse to repent. In perfect balance, God extends forgiveness and punishment. The unrepentant face the greatest consequences because they reject a God who is gracious and loving. Some misinterpret his consequence to think that God punishes the children for the father's sin. But the point is that the children suffer because of the parents' sinful decisions. God doesn't reverse that. It is a natural consequence of our actions. If we think of alcoholic parents, if we think of incarcerated parents, if we think of abusive parents, if we think of unbelieving parents, blessings and consequences always have a generational effect. After going through an episode of identity theft, you saw an an advertisement and you decided to subscribe to a service, a service called LifeLock. LifeLock is a service that promises to secure your identity, to prevent anything going on on your credit without your prior authorization. And after enrolling in the program, every time your wife or you attempted to open a new line of credit, immediately your cell phone rang. As a representative from LifeLock is calling you to assure it's really is you or her who's making a purchase. Only when you authorize the transaction will LifeLock allow the transaction to go through. Your identity first has to be verified. And after your identity was stolen in order to clear your credit report, you learn that you personally would have to go to the police department to provide evidence of your identity. You ask, can I send somebody? You ask, can I mail it in? You ask, can my wife come? You ask, can I go online and complete a form? And the answer to all of those, no. You had to show up in person. So you gathered your birth certificate. You gathered your social security card. You gathered your credit report and you headed to the police department where you fill out all the necessary documentations. 
for the case of the identity theft. And he began to the process of reclaiming your identity. Well, 2,000 years ago, after his identity had been stolen on one too many occasions, God decided to reclaim his identity. He decided enough was enough, and he, he made his way to reclaim his identity. He couldn't send someone. It had to be him. A prophet couldn't do it. A priest couldn't do it. An earthly queen could not do it. An angel couldn't do it. He decided to come himself. In human flesh. In the form of Jesus Christ. To reclaim his identity. Jesus Christ born in the town of Bethlehem. Jesus Christ born to a Virgin Mary. Jesus Christ who started his ministry around age 30. He said, if you've seen me, you have seen the Father. Jesus Christ was full of compassion. Jesus Christ was full of grace. Jesus Christ was full of love. What did Jesus show us about the identity of God? God, he showed us that he was, God was compassionate, that he, God was gracious, that God was loving, that God was faithful, that God was faithful, he was forgiven, he was just. Jesus Christ was put on trial. Jesus Christ was wrongly convicted and sentenced. Jesus Christ carried his own cross. Jesus Christ made his way up the, the hill called Calvary. Jesus Christ's hands were nailed. His feet were pierced. His head wore a thorn, a crown of thorns. Jesus Christ's side was pierced. Jesus Christ hung from the sixth to the ninth hour. The scripture tells us that Jesus Christ hung his head and died. Then he was placed in a barred tomb. And Jesus Christ stayed there for two nights. But Sunday morning, he got up. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Let us pray. Thank you, O oh God, for reclaiming your identity. We thank you, Heavenly Father, that we know you in Jesus Christ, O oh Lord. He is the brightness of your glory, the express image of your person. In his face, we see your face. And we humbly ask that the Holy Spirit may open our eyes more fully. 
more fully to see, open our hearts to be more passionate in love for you in him. And it's his name we pray. Amen.